0: your Bibles, please, to Micah chapter 7. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. We, we know we're in your presence. We're always in your presence. The whole earth is filled with your glory. But in a special way, we bring ourselves before you, humbling ourselves, submitting ourselves, placing ourselves at your feet, desirous to worship you, desirous to adore you. With our words, our mind, our actions, we ask that you would help us to yield our entire being to you, that we would learn and grow, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray, Father, we confess that we don't feel as whole as generally as many of our faithful brethren are not with us. We pray your safety and protection, your blessing and comfort upon each one where they may be. Help us as we meet together that we would set aside any distractions, that we would recognize that our worship is of you, for you, toward you, from you. We pray that you'd be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Who do you think of when you think of the character trait of dependability? Cal Ripken Jr. surpassed Lou Gehrig as baseball's Iron Man when he played in his 2,131st straight game. Friends, that is 13-plus baseball seasons. Do you know what the average length of a baseball career is? 5.6 years, and this guy played in 13-plus years straight, and that was just when he passed the record. Additionally, after that, he went on to play an additional amount that totaled his streak of 2,632 straight baseball games. That is 16-plus years of playing 162 baseball games every year without taking a break. That is unfathomable. It's unheard of. During those years no one no one questioned who's gonna play shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles today. They knew Cal Ripken Jr. would be there every single game. That's dependability. A different kind of dependability is, uh, and I had to throw in a little bit of a little bit of football today, just just for your enjoyment. Adam Vinatieri, a model of dependability from the kicker position. He was part of four different championship teams, three with the New England Patriots, one with the (coughs) Indianapolis Colts. But he was noted for his most famous kick back in 2002, it was the 2001-2002 season, but in 2002, a 45-yard field goal in what they call the Snow Bowl. Now, if you remember that game, some of you do, some of you don't, some of you don't care about football, some of you don't even know what a field goal is. I understand. (laughs) The snow was coming down similar to yesterday at its height, and he kicked a 45-yard field goal. That's not easy to kick that field goal anyway particularly outside, but then when you add the snow into the mix, he, he kicked this thing, driving it through the snow to tie the game, and then he went on to, to two other equally important kicks. In 2002 also, he, he beat the St. Louis Rams with a field goal, 48 yards to end the game. It's a very nice thing, very happy thing. And then a couple years later, in 2004, he beat the Carolina Panthers, with another last-second field goal. That's dependability also. One is duration every day. You know he's going to show up. He's going to do his job. You know he's going to make the play. And then there's this other kind of dependability where as it comes to the end of the game, and you say, we're going to put the game on your foot. And you have this confidence because of the track record that it's going to come through, and, and he has many times. As a general rule, we begin to depend on people when they demonstrate capabilities upon which we can depend. In other words, they show themselves faithful. They show themselves faithful. Micah Micah will point us to one such dependable person. And that's what we want to notice this morning. As we we navigate through the end of Micah chapter 7, between this morning and next Sunday morning, we're going to look at this in two parts. We want to notice the dependability of God, or who is a God like you? Micah has surveyed the scene, and it's not a pretty sight. Not a pretty sight at all. He is feeling great disappointment. And as he has surveyed the scene and has become disappointed, he looks inside and he simply feels dissatisfied the external scene has impacted his own sense of well-being. He, 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 he sensed inside as though he were a fig picker going out to pick figs in fig season. And when he went there to go grab a fig, he realized there were no figs or a a person going into a vineyard to go to pick some grapes and he lifts up a vine ready to to grab one juicy grape and there's there's no grapes. Great disappointment. The situation has made him feel greatly dissatisfied internally. Then he looks outside. He finds only unfaithfulness. So thus he's still dissatisfied. But finally, he looks up. He looks up to the Lord his God, and there he finds ultimate salvation, and there he finds ultimate satisfaction. Take a look, please, at verse 7. Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So Micah, having looked inside and looked outside, he recognized the futility of it, and finally he looks upward and says, there is my salvation. This is the one upon whom I wait. God will hear me. I might not find solutions in me. I might not find solutions out there, but I will find solutions in him. As we move a little further in this chapter, as we conclude our study of Micah, the next subsection, verses 8 through 10, appears to be Micah speaking on behalf of the remnant of Israel. Now, it doesn't say that, but I think as you, as you recognize what's being said, every commentator says he's speaking on behalf of the remnant, and I, and I much to my chagrin, I don't like to make these kinds of leaps. They have to be right because of the way he speaks. Now, who is the remnant, I think is a good question. What what do you mean the remnant of Israel? These are the people that still trust God. They still trust him. You see, Israel has been taken captive. Israel is on the verge of that captivity or they have been taken captive sometime in the period of Micah's ministry. And the, the reality is, Many of them, the reason they were taken captive is because they no longer trusted God, or really they never trusted God in the first place. But there was an element or a remnant of people that did trust Jehovah God, that did trust the promises of God, that, that did want his blessing and did want his shepherding in their lives. And so Micah speaks on their behalf what he essentially says in these first couple of verses is what you're seeing right now, what we see here in the scene in Israel during Micah's time, what you see is not the end of the story. It may look bleak. It may appear as though there's not a righteous man on the earth. It may appear that every fig tree I find has no figs and every vine I find has no grapes. It may seem this way, but this is not the end of the story. This is what he tells us. He lets us know. That he'll rise, that Israel will rise, and that the Lord will be their light. That God will execute justice for them. That he will bring forth the light. Take a look, beginning in verse 8. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Do not rejoice over me. Now, who's the enemy? Who's the opposer in this setting? Well, probably Babylon and Assyria. Assyria in the north. Babylon in the south. The, remember, the Assyrians actually did come south to attack, and God put a, a kibosh on that by sending the angel of the Lord and killing 185,000 Assyrians. Remember that? So, so the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they're coming against them. And, and what Micah says on behalf of the remnant, don't rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, as, as we have, I will arise. When I sit in darkness and it appears that everything is bad all around me and everything is negative and nothing good is taking place, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. You see, even in the midst of God judging Israel, God never neglected the remnant. God never neglects his people. He never does, even in the midst of chastisement. Verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. In other words, Israel will experience God's judgment. What's the reason? Because they sinned. It says, because I have sinned against him. Because we have sinned against him. We'll bear that indignation until... Anytime you see an until, when you get judgment, right? Bad things happening, until... What, what do you think that until is, is pointing you toward? Hey, there's hope. There's hope. There's judgment until... Indignation, until. So we have hope in the midst of this section. And he says, until what? Until he, God, pleads my case. Until he, God, executes justice. What does it say? For me. He executes justice for me. This is good news, friends. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. Then when this takes place, when, when God pleads my case, when God executes justice for me, when God brings me forth to the light and I get to see his righteousness, then she who is my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. You know what he's saying? He says, You know, it looks bad. I know what's coming. The people that are bringing the the trial and difficulty upon us, they're questioning. They're saying, Where's the Lord your God right now? Look at how bad you have it. He must not be real. The gods of the Babylonians, the gods of the Assyrians. What do they say today? I know better. We know better. There are these small G gods in every generation. They may change clothing, they may change the appearance, but it's the same thing. Generation after generation. Look over here. You'll find satisfaction here. Where's your god? Look at how good we have it. We can do X, Y, and Z, and it doesn't appear that your god let you do those X, Y, and Zs. And Micah says, you know. When when my God executes justice for me, for us, we're going to look over at that one who's making these statements and we're going to notice that she's trampled into the mud. Now, I don't think he's rejoicing in the destruction of these people, but I think what he's letting us know is there's vindication that comes. There's vindication. We're going to come back to this in a few minutes. I want to get this survey through the end of this chapter. Those who oppose will be brought to shame, it tells us in verse 10. Then in verses 11 and 12, the borders of God's kingdom will expand. Look at verse 11. In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go f- uh, far and wide. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea, and mountain to mountain. So the, the borders of the kingdom will expand. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Verse 13. The nations who oppose God will experience the disaster of of rebelling against him. I'll say that again. The nations who oppose God will experience the disaster of rebelling against him. Look what it says in verse 13. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. What a humbling statement. This is not, again, it's not something that we take delight in, but the reality is those who oppose God and his people, it doesn't work out for them. It doesn't. Sometimes it may feel like it. Sometimes it may feel like things are working out for the, the wicked. Sometimes it seems like they're prospering, even in their wickedness. But don't forget the end of the story. We haven't seen it, but it's written. It's written. And again, we don't take delight in it, but but think about day in and day out as babies are, are murdered, day in and day out as as. Just injustice in this country and around the world is is brought forth from from law enforcement upon people from uh, military people upon the, the people from from dictators on their people injustice all around the world and it's like why isn't there an intervention just know that while we don't see the end of the story right now there is an end coming God doesn't not see these things. There will be justice. Verses 14 through 17, Micah prays for God's plan to come to fruition. He says in verse 14, he's praying that God would shepherd his people. In verse 15, we're going to go through this. You don't, don't, don't stress. I'm just trying to walk you through the passage. Verse 14, he's praying that God would shepherd his people. In verse 15, that God would demonstrate his power. In verses 16 and 17, that God would subdue the enemy. In verse 14, he says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage. These ones, these who are your people, they dwell currently solitarily or in isolation in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in days of old. In other words, bring them into your promised land. Let them go from isolation to the promised land. Shepherd your people back to where they ought to be. That's what he's saying there in verse 14. He wants God to bring about his plan. Anyone think that God's not going to bring about his plan? Of course we know he's going to bring about his plan. Does that keep us from praying about it? No. No. The the apostle John knew that Jesus was going to come, right? And he even he ended the, the, the letter near the end of Revelation 22. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Do you have to say that in order for Jesus to come? No. Does he still do it? Yes. How about praying for God's kingdom to come? Do we have to do that in order for it to come? No. It's going to come one way or the other. Is it illustrated to pray for the kingdom to come? Yes. So why not do it? So here we have uh, Micah saying, shepherd your people, bring them to the promised land, get them out of isolation and solitary confinement and bring them into gloriously into your presence. He asks in verse 15, God, demonstrate your power. Verse 15, as in the days of uh, when, you, when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. Now, now it's not Micah praying, it's God responding. I'm going to show you power. I'm going to show you wonders. I'm going to show you my, my almighty power. Verses 16 and 17, God will subdue, subdue the enemy. We're not going to read that at this point because we're going to cover that next week. As we come to the end of Micah, these glorious verses, verses 18 through 20, we read it in our responsive reading already. He concludes with one of the most important questions you'll ever answer in your life. And you need to answer it right here. As you think about your God, answer the question, Who? is a God like you? Who is a God like you? And as we re-look through this passage again today and then again next week, that is how we're going to look at the passage. We're going to look at it through the lens of that question. What is your God like? Who is your God? This passage demonstrates a number of ways that God displays himself. tells us about his character. And it really, quite honestly, if, if you had just this section of scripture, you'd have a fairly good understanding of God. Just from this one passage, from from verse, well, really the whole chapter, but uh, our, our concentration for verse 18 to 20, you'd have a very nice working understanding of who your God is if you just understood this passage. So that's how we're going to look at it. We're going to approach it from the the Question, who is your God? First of all, I want us to note from verses 8 through 10 that God is just. God is just. Look again at verse 8. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see His righteousness Then she who was my enemy will see. And shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. First of all, note this. Regarding God's justice, He chastens His people God chastens his people. Why? Why? Because he's mad? If you were to survey God-fearing people, I'm not talking about people that don't fear God, that don't acknowledge that he exists. If you were to examine or or to to survey God-fearing people, I don't know how they'd actually answer it, but I'm telling you right here, they think that God's chastisement is because he's angry with them it's to get them back for their ingratitude, for their disobedience, for their rebellion. And I want to tell you as sure as you're sitting in the seat you're sitting in, that that is false. That is false. God chastens His people because He loves us. Additionally, He chastens His people to bring us back to fruitfulness. Listen, friends, it's a bad place to be to be a Christian not bearing fruit. To be an unbeliever not bearing fruit, well, that's natural. They shouldn't bring forth fruit. They can't bring forth fruit. We shouldn't expect an unbeliever to bring forth fruit, it's impossible. So, a really bad place to be is a person who is a believer that is not bearing fruit. It's inconsistent. And when that inconsistency takes place, God says, this is not, what I, this is not my plan for you. So he, he brings some pressure your way. Sometimes it will be external. Sometimes you'll feel it externally, financially, physically, relationally. Sometimes that's the way it comes. And there are other times it's not external. Sometimes you have no further chastisement than right in between the temples. Then you might have glimpses of happiness, glimpses of joy, Glint is of enjoyment of life, but you know what happens? You keep coming back to misery. Feel right. Uh, something's wrong. I need this. I need this. This will solve my problem. And this comes because you obtained it. And you go, ah, this will solve my problem. And you'll get it because you're smart enough to know how to get what you want. And you go get that. And this is temporary enthusiasm. But it doesn't solve the problem. If there's something deeper that can't be filled with some item or some relationship, it won't be filled. And so you look to something else, and eventually you come to the end of yourself and say, I am just gonna be miserable. And that's when many times people say, you know what, I've had enough of this, I'm gonna put an end to it. Many a person has put an end to their life because they just couldn't get that which would satisfy them. What what was the... What was the first cause? They just refused all of God's promptings. Fruitlessness in a Christian is inconsistent with Christianity. Christianity is about following Christ. When you're rightly related to him, you will bear fruit. And so God chastens his people to bring us to fruitfulness. Does that sound like it's because he's angry or because you're going to be miserable unless you're fruitful? Yeah, think about the difference, because he loves us. God also, in his justice, vindicates his people. It says at the end of verse 9, we already read it, until he pleads my case, until he executes justice for me, he will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. So God vindicates his people. And then in verse 10, he judges those who oppose his people. Again, we, we touched on this, so I'm just re just re. Addressing it, and then I wanna, I'm trying to tuck it in under a nice attribute of God, of one of God's perfections. God is just. What does it mean that he's just? Now, here, here's, here's a nice little working definition of justice. Righteousness is God doing what's right. Every thought, every word, every deed from God is right. That's his righteousness. Justice is when God requires every word thought indeed from you to be righteous that's god's justice god requiring righteousness from you so when we say that god is just we're saying he requires his people to be just so he chastens them when they're not or righteous and he chastens them when they're not and when people rise up against him and against his people god vindicates them in his Justice And he puts to shame those who oppose. God judges them. So this is God's justice. We learn that. Verses eight through 10, we're learning who is a God like you. He's just in every way. in his dealing with me, in his dealing with the world, in his dealing with those who oppose us. Furthermore, and very happily, I think of all of God's attributes, all of God's perfections. This one is my favorite. God is faithful. God is faithful. This passage unveils it. Before we dive into it, I just I want to tell you, tell you a little bit personally why I find God's faithfulness to be my favorite of his perfections. I want you to think about people that are trying to navigate through this life, trying to find a way, trying to find a way to, to make things work. And they try this, and they try that, and they try to please themselves, they try to please those that are around them, they try to please some authority figure, they try, they try all kinds of things to feel happy. And it's like these little gods, these little gods, and they're never satisfied. In fact, they have more than one god, and so it's really difficult. So, so when I please me, I don't please my spouse, right? A lot of times, it's like you make choices. And so if you're not pleasing your spouse, but you're pleasing you, now you might be happy in this area, but not so happy in that area. Or you please your children, maybe you're not so happy. And so so this imbalance. Or you go to please your boss, but your family's kind of left on the outside. You've got this, this tugging in every direction. It's like, man, who do I please? When we think about our relationship with God, there's only one person to please. And it's not like, like the fickle gods that change their minds after a little while. I will, you know, that's. I've had enough of that. Now I want this. Oh, okay, that's good enough of that. Now I want this. And changing all the time. Now I can't imagine having church authorities that changed the standards of biblical truth over periods of time. It, it, that would conflict with my brain. I, 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 don't, I don't know how I would, would function to think, well, is God different than in the first century? Is God different than in the second century? Is God different than, in, you know, the 1970s? Is God different than the 2000s? What's going on? How, why is the church changing its theology midstream because, like, people didn't like it? Where's this coming from? Doesn't make any sense to me. Our God is faithful. He's fixed. You can know what to expect. You know what he expects. There's no variables. I love this. And listen, God saved me in my rebellious, sinful state. At the worst I could possibly be, God saved me. What does that tell you about your Christian life? Is he going to say, well, I'm through with you now. I'm done. You've disgusted me one too many times. Too many people live their Christian lives thinking that God will say, you know what? You've, you did it seven times. The eighth time, you're done. The 800th time, you're done. 900th, you're done. I'm done with you. There are too many people that live their Christian life thinking this way. This is not the God that we have. Now, let's take a look, please. Beginning in verse 11. God is faithful. In the day when your walls are to be built... In that day the decree shall go far and wide. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea, and mountain to mountain. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. First of all, we note concerning God's faithfulness, that the kingdom will be established. Now, you notice how it says in verse 11, in the day when your walls are to be built. Walls are to be built. That could be, I don't think it is, it could be a reference to Nehemiah. That would be demonstrating God's faithfulness as well, okay? If you want to take it that way, it's fine. That'd be a literal interpretation that's saying, okay, uh, from from this place of desolation, you have oppositions, God takes you into captivity, and God sends you back to the land and you build the walls. He's going to do this. And so that would be a great demonstration of his faithfulness. I just think that it's too temporal. I think what's being said in this few verses is a lot more expansive than just that one temporary fulfillment, though it may be involved in it. Notice the, the, the phrase three times in this short period, uh, short section, in the day, in that day, in that day. Those are eschatological terms, meaning last day's terms. Okay? So he's not just talking about some fulfillment in time, but he's talking about ultimate fulfillment. Now, again, you can disagree, it's fine. If it is, in fact, eschatological, then the building of the walls is not a physical building or a reference to Nehemiah's day, but a reference to God establishing his kingdom on the earth, like in its full-blown capacity. The reason I think that's the better interpretation is as we look a little bit further, in addition to seeing that the kingdom will be established, we're going to notice this, the kingdom will expand. The kingdom will expand. Look at verse 11. In that day, the decree shall go far and wide. The decree shall go far and wide. Now, the word decree comes from a Hebrew word, and it looks just like our soft drink, Coke. Coke. The decree is Coke. Now, it actually looks a little different in Hebrew. It's funny looking. But the word Coke means statute or ordinance, or limit, keep listening, something prescribed, prescribed portion, prescribed limit, or the best word, in my opinion, for this context, boundary, which is how the ESV translates it, boundary. What it says here, if that is the correct translation, which I think it is, in that day, the boundary shall go far and wide. Now the parable of the mustard seed gives us implication of this very concept that this very tiny little mustard seed is planted and it grows into this large bush, right? And it it starts small, but it grows very large. The concept here I believe that he's he's conveying is that the kingdom will expand, that the kingdom starts small, but it will, will grow to great and significant heights. How much expansion will take place? the, The border will go far and wide. How much expansion will take place? Well, that leads us to our next concept, which is this. The kingdom will incorporate all nations. The kingdom will incorporate all nations. Look at what it says in verse 12. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, and from sea to sea, and mountain to mountain. In other words, they're coming, and they're coming, and they're coming. They're coming from here, there, and everywhere. The concept is that everyone will be under the the auspices of the kingdom. So God's kingdom will expand. God's kingdom will incorporate all nations. Now, we have already seen this in the book of Micah. Take a look at Micah chapter 4. You might be tracking in a certain way that you're saying, well, what does the kingdom being established and the kingdom expanding and the kingdom incorporating all nations. What does that have to do with God's faithfulness? Have you heard of Genesis chapter 12 where God made a promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He's talking about that blessing here that the kingdom arrives, expands, and incorporates all people. So this is Absolutely identifiable with God's faithfulness. God promised at the very beginning, and we see it coming to pass in God's own mind and will come to pass in its absolute certainty under God's directive care. Micah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He Jesus shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. You know, the, God said it, it will come to pass. That's what is being said there. And Micah is making reference to this, I believe, in Micah chapter 7 when he says, and the people are going to come back. From, from Assyria, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain, they're going to come. They're going to come. Why? Because the kingdom of God incorporates all people. One passage we want to turn to, and we're going to come right back here. So hold your hand here and turn over to Isaiah chapter 19, please. Verse 23. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed, listen carefully, I just love this, blessed is Egypt. What does it say? My people, Egypt, no, 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 they're the enemy. No, Egypt, my people. And Assyria, what does it say? The work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance. you notice what Isaiah is telling us from the Lord? That the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and the Israelites, that's, that's shorthand for saying, all the people of the earth, they're mine. They will come under my kingdom. I will rule them. I will love them. I will bless them. This is the kingdom God promised. It's going to come to pass. You believe it? It's awesome. God is faithful. The the, the kingdom will be established. It will expand. It will incorporate all nations. Look a little further with me, please. Back in Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. The kingdom will rise out of the devastation of judgment. Judgment the kingdom will rise out of the devastation of judgment. He's saying, in that day, in that day, in that day, all these things are going to happen. Yet, at that time that that's going place, going on, before leading to that day, verse 13, yet the land shall be desolate. Why? Why will it be desolate? Why, why such heaviness? Why judgment? Because of those who dwell in it. Those who dwell in the land. Because of people and for the fruit of their deeds. God will bring judgment upon the world because of people's fruitless deeds. I don't have to tell you, do I? What's going on in the world? and What's been going on? The rejection, utter outright rejection of God and his principles and his way. The, the taking advantage of women and children taking advantage of whole people groups. Listen, I don't need to instruct you in this stuff. You know all that's going on around the world. People are taken advantage of every single day the fruit of their deeds. Listen, God doesn't leave that stuff untouched. It might look like it, it might feel like it. It's not untouched. And so judgment comes because of people's fruitless or evil deeds. There's desolation, but out of that desolation, Out of that desolation, we have the kingdom established, expanding, incorporating all people. This is good news, friends. This is is God's promises. That's the gospel. God's promises right here in the midst of judgment in the book of Micah. He doesn't ever leave us without promise and hope, He always fulfills His promises. All right, so God is faithful. God is just. God is faithful. Now, finally, for this morning, and it will only take a few minutes on this, so don't don't tune out. God is a shepherd. God is a shepherd. Now, you'll notice in verse 14 that Micah is praying for God to do this, but that doesn't mean he's not shepherding. God doesn't ever stop being who he is. He doesn't change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in verse 14, it says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in days of old. He's he's really just saying, God, shepherd us. God is a shepherd. Now, you don't have to come back here, because we're we're done in Micah for this morning. We're going to come back to Micah next week. But follow with me to some familiar, at least one familiar passage, and then one maybe familiar or not, I don't know. Psalm 23, first, God is a shepherd. In Psalm 23, it's going to tell us a little bit about that shepherding ministry, what that shepherding ministry looks like and feels like, what it encompasses. In verse 1, again, this is familiar, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not, what does your Bible say? Anyone have a different word than want? There you go. Lack. That's that's the idea. God is my shepherd. I don't have any lack. He's enough. His shepherding ministry is enough. He gives me what I need. Verse 2. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Listen carefully. Surely goodness and mercy shall, the word follow is pursue. Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Listen, God's shepherding ministry doesn't stop following us. God's goodness, God's favor, God's mercy pursue me just like he pursued Israel even in their rebellion. God is a shepherd. Take a look, please, at Isaiah 40. While you're turning there, I'll remind you of a couple of items. Jacob, one of the patriarchs, Jacob in some of his final words spoke of God's shepherding through shepherding him throughout his entire life. If you want to see that later on, you can jot down Genesis 48, 15 he spoke of God shepherding him his entire life. Now what do you know about Jacob? A bit of a scoundrel. God shepherded him even through his scandalous ways. In Psalm 80 in verse 1 the psalmist addresses God as shepherd of Israel, shepherd of Israel. Here we are in Isaiah 40. Please look with me. This this is this is astounding. It really is. Uh, I hope that you can appreciate the depth of meaning and tenderness that comes from an all-powerful God. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 9, "O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains, O Jerusalem you who bring good tidings lift up your voice with strength lift it up be not afraid say to the cities of judah behold your god behold the lord god shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule them behold his reward is with him and his work before him Do you have the power in verse 10 there's authority right you can, can you see the authority? His almighty hand is coming. He, he's coming in strength and he will rule them. But Look at the transition in that strength, how he rules. Verse 11, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Can you you feel this? Can you sense this God of authority and power? He says he's coming and he's going to rule. But in the midst of that powerful almighty rule, how he deals with people, he feeds his sheep, he gathers them in his arms, and he leads along the ones who have weaklings. God is a shepherd. This is what we see from Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you? I'll tell you what, he's just. And in his justice, he chastens his people, but he also vindicates his people. God is faithful. He promised that he would set his kingdom here and expand it and make it encompass the whole world, and it's going to come to pass. God is faithful. He'll keep his promises. And God is a shepherd. With his strong, mighty, all-knowing being, he shepherds the weaklings. I want to ask you, is this your God? This is the reason Micah was able to look up and say, ah, I didn't find anything good here. I didn't find anything good there. But I looked up and I saw ultimate salvation and ultimate satisfaction. There's no other reason or no other, no other way to look. He is enough. He is my ultimate salvation and satisfaction. The one that is almighty is the one that is all mercy, all grace all love, all kindness. When we hear that question, like Israel did, where is the Lord your God? We can with confidence reflect upon his nature. We can recall his track record and we can remember and trust his promises. Who is a God like you? What is your God like? Do you know him? Do you have a harmonious relationship with him? Does he meet your heart's deepest needs? Is he enough? Is he enough for you? You can depend upon him. He's trustworthy. There is no other dependable one. We look at Micah 7 and we recognize this. God is showing you who he is. He's showing you who he is. And our response should be just like Micah's. I didn't find anything here. Didn't find anything there. I find it all right there. I'm looking up. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We're thankful that you are so faithful and you're, you're just in every every action and you are our shepherd. In this, we feel great satisfaction. Help us to leave here rejoicing in all you've done. And Father, if there's anyone here that this is not true about that you are not their shepherd because they've chosen to go their own way, we pray that even in this closing few moments they might turn their gaze to Jesus for salvation, recognizing that he is enough and his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross is sufficient to make them right with you so you will shepherd them. Help us to leave with joy in our hearts and a message on our lips that will tell others who our God is proudly, confidently, with joy, and rejoicing, and with tenderness. In Jesus' name, amen.